I'm Maria. And I'm Roisin. And welcome to the Fitness Fertility Podcast. This podcast is all about how improving your physical fitness can help support you on your very own fertility journey. I'm a personal trainer who specializes in training women with fertility problems. I myself have PCOS and have had two beautiful boys, and I'm on a mission to help you do the same. Before we get into it, we will be discussing adult themes such as where do babies come from, pregnancy loss and bereavement. We may also be sweary from time to time. We are optimistic, lighthearted girls, but we know this is a really stressful time for some of our listeners. We respect that. In this week's show, I am delighted to welcome Professor Harper onto the programme. Joyce Harper is an award-winning professor of reproductive science at the Institute for Women's Health, University College London. She is head of the Reproductive Science and Society Group and leads the International Women's Day events at the Institute. She has worked in the fields of fertility, genetics, reproductive health and women's health for over 30 years. She is passionate about education and discussion of all aspects of women's health, but especially at three key stages, the menstrual cycle, the fertile years and the menopause. Her latest book, Your Fertile Years, was published in 2021. She is founder of Reproductive Health at Work and the International Reproductive Health Education Collaboration and co-founder of the UK Fertility Education Initiative. She regularly appears in the press, on radio and TV. She is the mother of three sons born through IVF. Joyce is also a keen open water swimmer, a qualified aerobics instructor and an ambassador for This Girl Can. She is also host of her own fantastic podcast, Why Didn't Anyone Tell Me This? Professor Joyce Harper, welcome to the Fitness Fertility Podcast. Good evening. Could you just tell us a little bit about your own fertility story and how you've ended up working in the space that you're now in? Yes, certainly. My career started really when I finished my PhD back in a long time ago, 1987. And I started working as a clinical embryologist who is the person in the fertility laboratory who does all the magical things. And I was very aware as I was learning so much about fertility at that time, I was 25 and trying not to get pregnant. And so were all my friends. And I used to go back after work and talk to them about all these things about our menstrual cycle and our fertility, which we didn't know. We had not been educated about it. So I actually started writing a book back in 1987, but didn't feel I was really qualified at that time to write it. Roll on 20 odd years as a lab scientist, starting in the, as I said, in the fertility lab and then working on something called pre-implantation genetic testing. About 2015, I thought it really was time to write this book. I was then with my friends, we were all going through the menopause and there was just no information out there. So I felt we were in a situation again where the public didn't really know about some of these really key life events that were so important for women's health. I wrote the book and published it um, a couple of years ago in the middle of lockdown, which was not not an ideal time to publish a book. Um, and my research, I've, I've done research my whole career, so my research has really focused since writing the book on educating the public and how we can do that. That's really always been a passion of mine, but now it really is at the forefront of of all of the work that I do. And I can see from everything that you do that you are through and through an educator. Everything that you do through your work and through the podcast and and through your book is is all about education. And do you mind if I just ask you, you ended up having your own sons through IVF. 
Was that just a coincidence that you were working in the field of fertility? Did you know before you were doing the work? I was just curious about that. Um, I certainly didn't know when I was 25. Mm-hmm. I had wanted to have kids in my uh, late 20s, early 30s. My long-term boyfriend wasn't ready to have kids at that time. And he had the kids himself much later. I became single at 32, really did think about having kids then and was very aware of my biological clock and female fertility decline. Um, but went out with someone then who was much younger than me for a few years. But at 35, I became very nervous and worried about not being a mother yet. Was very lucky to meet somebody who we discussed straight away that I wanted to have children and so did he. So we began trying then straight away. But I didn't have my first son till just before my 40th birthday. And we went through many years of fertility treatment. I realized quite soon after each failed month with another period arriving that there was something that wasn't right and that we needed to really get on the fertility roller coaster and start having tests and then start having treatment. So it was absolutely not planned to be the other side of the table. It's a hard journey for anybody, but it, yeah, it was it was really, really hard to be working with the clinic that I was doing research with and then going there for my treatment as well. Yeah, I was just wondering, was it possible that, you know, you knew too much? Sometimes people, it's easier to go through when they don't know as much. Did you feel that the amount of information you had made your journey easier or harder or just kind of somewhere in the middle? It is always a difficult one. I think especially when I was pregnant, every day of my pregnancy, I think I think I know, know too much. I know all the things that can go wrong. <laughs> um, on the fertility journey, I don't know. Did I know too much? I think it's such a painful thing to have to go through for anyone or any couple. I found it really... I thought it had always been easy. I didn't realize how hard it was. I think, and this is what I tell all the health professionals who work in this field, we just sit the other side of the table and we say all these things and we have absolutely no idea how hard it is to go through this until we're the patient. So that was the biggest eye-opener for me, being really aware of how difficult the journey was. And I had no idea. And all those years I'd worked in fertility treatment, I'd really not been aware of what the patients were going through. And I can only imagine that the experience you've been through just makes you an even better practitioner in all of the work that you do, because obviously, you know, you're smart, you're intelligent, you, you know, you're a PhD, you've got years of experience. But I guess that emotional side must just be a little bit extra when you are working with, with people or talking to people. And I imagine uh, they're very grateful for the empathy that you would have around that. And I guess the other thing I wanted to check was this idea of education, which obviously you are so passionate about. Do you think you would have started going through treatment at the age you did if you didn't know what you knew? Because like you said, we don't get taught this in school. I definitely wouldn't leave it. I've left it later. I really didn't want to be 35. I knew (laughs) that 35 was a really difficult age. So I was very aware that, that I could have a problem. And then when I did have a problem, I really wasn't that surprised. I was very, very sad. I had wanted to have children naturally. I definitely wouldn't have left it any later. And that's why I'm so passionate about people having the information and understanding their limits of their biology, because leaving it later would have made it even worse and and may well have resulted in me not having children at all. And I've seen that too many times. I think being aware 
made me do it earlier than some people would. The new relationship at age 35 might have taken it much slower and might have totally missed the boat. I mean, I was passionate in 87 about teaching the public about this. By the time I'd gone through fertility treatment myself and a couple more years to, to have my twins, became a huge passion to make sure that everyone has the information so nobody leaves it too late. Mm, absolutely. And with that said, I've just wondered if you could help our listeners to understand the significance of this age 35. Yeah, so unfortunately, women are born with all the eggs we're going to have. And we have most eggs, actually, while we're a fetus in our mum's womb. And then by the time we're born, a lot of those have already died. And we have about one to two million at birth. And then by the time we get to puberty, most of those have then died. And we end up with about three or four hundred thousand eggs, potential eggs. And then from puberty to the menopause, every month, we only ovulate one egg and we have 50 menstrual cycles. So we ovulate about 500 eggs. Now, I said that we had about 300, 400,000. So you could do the maths, what happened to all the others. And what happens is that every month we ovulate one, but about 600 to 1,000 eggs just die each month. They get lost from our ovary. So I was really aware that this quantity of these eggs becomes really important in our 30s. Women will start to have significant fertility decline. And I'm speaking generally, of course, there will always be the exception, but most women will experience fertility decline in their 30s. And the data, huge amounts of data from many, many decades of research have found that age 35 becomes really important where there'll be really significantly lower chance of, of getting pregnant naturally or through fertility treatment. And it's the quantity of our eggs that have gone down, but also the quality of the eggs have gone down. So when we're teenagers, we're super fertile. We've got lots of eggs and they're really healthy eggs. So the quality and quantity are both great. As we age and get towards the menopause, both the quantity, as I've said, but also the quality goes down. And then those both become really important at age 35. And our risk of miscarriage goes up as we get near the menopause. And this is mainly because of the quality of those eggs. It's actually, sorry to have a little bit of technical thing, but we've got chromosomes in our eggs. We've got chromosomes that we inherit from our mum in our egg. And they're in a very fragile state. So what happens is as we get older, we have a higher chance of having unbalanced chromosomes in the egg. This can lead to a child with Down syndrome or other chromosome abnormalities, but more commonly it will be incompatible with life. So what will happen is that we get an increase in miscarriage rates. So the graphs of age and fertility show us that female fertility goes down with age, the chance of miscarriage goes up and that miscarriage rate also starts getting really important around age 35. So the quantity and quality of those eggs from age 35 onwards really goes negatively for our fertility. And if we look at the fertility results, if you look at IVF success rates and things from different countries all around the world, most of them group your chance of getting pregnant under age 35 together. And then from age 35 onwards, they group them in one or two year time zone. So if you look at the website for the, the government authority that govern IVF in the UK, the HFEA, 
you'll see age 35 and under, and then you'll see every two years the chance of success by those years, and you see it rapidly fall. And by the time you get to your sort of early 40s, it's a few percent the chance of getting pregnant by fertility treatment. So we've got gazillions amount of data showing that this really is true. And yes, you'll all hear about someone, uh, Gordon Ramsay's wife, I believe, just had a child quite late. And you'll always hear of that odd person, which is an exception to the rule. But for most people, it's going to be that we're totally infertile by our early 40s. And in our mid-30s, we're starting to get fertility problems. This is absolutely fascinating. Those numbers that you've just told us have just blown my mind. <laughs> you know, when you were talking about thousands and millions and, and where did they all go? Because I knew that they went somewhere, but I, I didn't realise it was quite that drastic. One of the things I'd like to ask you is for people who are the other side of 35, what makes a good quality egg? It's not so much the quality of the individual egg. We can't really test for that or look for that. But we do know how well the woman's responding to the fertility drugs that we give her. If um, she's not responding very well, then we know that she's not going to have a good chance of success with fertility treatment. The data does show that the more eggs you get, the better it is. Now, there is a plateau of most people would say around sort of by 12, 13, 14 eggs, definitely by 15 eggs per um, round of treatment per egg collection, the better number of eggs you get, the better your chance of success. It's showing that you've got a good number of eggs. You've got a good, what we call ovarian reserve. Those ovaries are working really well. And it would give an indication that the quality might be okay. But as I said, we can't really test that, but we know the numbers are good. So it's looking like the woman is still quite fertile. And what happens as the woman ages is the egg number goes down or as she starts to uh, get near in the menopause and the menopause um, for every woman is going to be totally different. But before you reach the menopause, you you lose your fertility. Um, some say up to 10 years before you actually stop your periods. And obviously that varies in every woman. And that's why you'll see someone at 40 odd getting pregnant. But, you know, most women can't. Quality, as I said, will will tail off towards the menopause. What we do know is that every woman's ovarian response to the fertility drugs will be different. And that will give an indication that she's having a good response and that she's probably more fertile than the woman who's had quite a poor response and only maybe looks like a few eggs. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. With this kind of unique response from from woman to woman, is this where we get into things like short protocols and, and long protocols? Are these some of the differences that might happen as people go through treatment? So every woman is totally individual. It's one thing we've always got to understand in, in women's health. We're very different from when we start our periods, how our periods are, how our menstrual cycle is, how our fertility is, how our menopause is. We're all so different. So for fertility treatment, there is absolutely not one size fits all with the drug treatments. The clinics have got to tailor the treatment to that particular woman. They can do this ovarian reserve test to see roughly how much fertility drug that they might give the woman to start with. And um, that's because they're so different that they they can't just start everyone on the same dose. So they individualize it. But then we need to monitor that woman and see how um, she is responding. Because again, we can't predict what she's going to do. So we have to monitor every woman 
very closely and see, do we need to tweak this? Do we need to give her a bit more or a bit less? So there are different drug regimes, like you said, the short protocol, the long protocol, all these different protocols that can be used at different times for different women to try and optimise the quantity of eggs we're going to get from her. This is, again, so interesting. And I was chatting to um, one of my clients the other day and they were thinking about moving clinics. And the reason they weren't sure whether to stay or to go, and it was basically because they'd had three rounds with the same protocol, if you like, and they still weren't pregnant. So they weren't sure whether they should move and try a different protocol with someone else, but the people they were with were reluctant to change it. So I guess if I picked your brain, is there any guidance on how many rounds you should do without becoming pregnant before you start to change up the protocol? Or again, is it just depends woman on woman? It's really so individual. That's why it's impossible to just say from from the information you've given whether that was the right or the wrong decision. It depended how many eggs that they collected. It depends how many embryos they got, what the quality of the embryos. I mean, after three rounds, the clinical decision might have been to stick with it. But we are very aware that most patients don't want you to stick with it. They like, Try something different, <laughs> you know, try something new um, for sure. They want something different out of the bag. You know, what What else can you try? Um, if you'd done a treatment and um, a certain protocol, drug protocol, and they hadn't got many eggs or they hadn't got many embryos or the embryos weren't of a good quality, then you you'd probably change that straight away. If they didn't change anything, sounds like... She had a really good response and really good number of embryos. But there is obviously the urge to change clinic. I think from my experience that clinics have quite different philosophies and they have quite different ways of, of treating their patients. So I think it's it's up to the couple what they want to do. It's such an individual thing about which type of clinic they'd like to go to, where they feel comfortable and where they feel happy. No easy answer, I'm afraid. I think just you saying it's really complicated will actually reassure listeners because it is. <laughs> I think just having someone say, yes, this is difficult, is actually quite nice to hear. One of the things we really want to talk about today is this idea of education. I guess the easiest way for me to ask you this question would be if you had a magic wand and you could wave it and change how everything is done, how would you manage the education side of fertility? Where would it begin? What would you do? What I would do was, well, what we're trying to do, <laughs> what I'm trying to do <laughs> is we have very, very basic education in schools. It's so basic. At schools, we teach the kids how not to get pregnant and how not to get an STI. We don't teach them how to have a healthy pregnancy, what you need to think about, you know, your preconception health. So before you get pregnant, thinking about how, you know, how healthy you both are before you embark on the pregnancy, which has long-term effects on, on fertility and pregnancy. We don't teach people about when the best time to try and get pregnant is. Um, we've, we've done surveys in schools and we've asked them, when can a woman get pregnant? And some of them, not all of them, but there's a proportion of, of school kids that think that you can get pregnant at any time of your cycle. There's some adults that think that as well, because that's what they the impression they were given at school. When in fact, there's only a few days a month where we are optimum fertility. And if you've never been taught that, how are you supposed to know? So, but it's it's hard to teach too much at school because for most of them, and again, we've asked school kids, when, if you want to have kids, when do you want to have them? And they don't want to have them until they're in their, you know, sort of late twenties, early thirties. That's the main age that they give. 
we do need to teach, teach the basics. We do need to hopefully get into their heads that um, even though we don't want them to have unprotected sex, <laughs> that they should understand about you know preparing for pregnancy and when you can get pregnant and having that healthy pregnancy. School needs to be the beginning, but then we need to use things like books. And I know there's you know, there lots of good books there about get, getting pregnant. And nowadays we can use social media. I think using the doctor's surgery, we've we've asked this question for fertility education and for menopause education. Do you want to learn in the doctor's surgery? And quite a few people do say, yes, it's a very popular answer to say, yes, I do. I just think that's not feasible. The doctors don't really have enough time even to see you to find out if you need any help or, you know, further treatment for anything. So to try and be a place of education, I think is really, really limited. And, you know, we have something called the Family Planning Clinic, which doesn't really do what it says it does. <laughs> it says it's a family planning clinic when actually it's a contraception clinic. But if it was a family planning clinic, that would be an amazing place. So in Denmark, my colleagues in Denmark have set that up. They've set up a clinic. They've set up a couple of them now. When a couple are thinking in the future, maybe two or three years, we might want to have children, they go to this clinic and they teach them about fertility and the things that they need to think about. And they also do a whole range of tests. So they check the sperm count. I think they check the womb as well. They do a number of tests to check that everything's okay. And they educate the couple about what they need to do, about what the optimum time to get pregnant is. And, you know, understanding the woman's menstrual cycle is really important so that you know, we talk about one in seven, one in eight couples being infertile, but that still means that there's a majority that are not infertile, but it's capturing those ones where there is a problem. So identifying polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS or endometriosis or sperm issues or other issues early on, if we actually had a clinic like Denmark do, where couples could go and plan their family. So I think that would be something that we'd really need to do. And as I said, the vast majority of people are going to be fine. And the vast majority of people that try to get pregnant, certainly if they're under 35, the woman's under 35, they will get pregnant within six months to a year. It's the one in seven that's having the problems that we need to try and capture as early as possible. And I, I do very firmly believe that with education, we can prevent some infertility. Actually, in 2015, when I started writing the book, I was part of the British Fertility Society Executive. And with um, Adam Balin and Jackie Boyven, we set up the UK Fertility Education Initiative to try and get these messages out there and support people in the UK who are trying to have children. And then in 2019, I was aware that you know people like my colleagues in Denmark, fantastic work in Australia, Portugal, there's this pockets of amazing work that's being done around this area. So I wanted to get all those people together and let's, you know, work together rather than reinvent the wheel in every country. Let's work together to see how we can do this. That's when we set up the international, originally we called ourselves the International Fertility Education Initiative. We changed the name um, from the work 
that I've been doing in schools and with the public, we always had the intention of educating from puberty to menopause. But lots of people think of fertility education as just being about getting pregnant. And our work is much wider than that. It's about reproductive health. Um, This year, we did a bold step before we got much bigger and we changed our name to the international, a very long name, sorry, the International Reproductive Health Education Collaboration. It's a bit dull, but we call ourselves IREC for short. Already on the website now, we have some stories of different fertility journeys. We're going to have very soon information leaflets for the public. We're just working with the public now, co-designing them. Been working for the last two to three years on a reproductive health education program for teachers. So we've made a big resource for them that covers all of these topics, right from puberty to menopause. It's going to be a free resource that they can use to teach in schools if they wanted to teach about miscarriage or they want to teach about fertility treatment or the optimum times of getting pregnant or the menopause. They can just lift out pieces from this free resource to do that. So we're trying to make sure that we give as much support as we can. As you said, we need to teach the public this. It's something that we don't have the infrastructure to do that. So that's what we're we're working on doing. This sounds amazing. I was wondering if you could talk us through things like the prenatal genetic testing and the, the pre-implantation testing. A lot of women ask about this. I know in a lot of the forums, people are asking, what should they do? Should they get it done? This really was my area for many years. So in the early 90s, I came out of the fertility lab and wanted to get back to academia. And I joined the team that developed pre-implantation genetic testing. And I joined them right at the beginning. So they just had a few years of very few number of uh, babies born. And um, so I worked with the team since 1992. So the main development of the technology of testing a few cells from the embryo was for couples that were at risk of a specific genetic disease. So if they knew already that they were at risk of their child having cystic fibrosis or beta thalassemia or hemophilia, that's what I worked on for years. We took some cells from the embryo and then we did a genetic test to find out which of their embryos were free from the disease. So these were couples at high risk but then in the early 90s, um, a few groups in the US, two groups in the US, had the brainwave of, um, you know, I talked about the chromosomes of these embryos, of sorry, the eggs from older women. As you get nearer the menopause, those chromosomes become fragile. And I said that we get uneven numbers of chromosomes. Some of them are not compatible with life at all. And there's the increased risk of Down syndrome. They had the idea, because we we know about these chromosomes becoming abnormal as a woman ages, they suggested, why don't we do this for all IVF patients or some IVF patients or maybe older aged IVF patients or those that have had repeated failures? Why don't we test the chromosomes from those embryos using this technology? And maybe it would give them a better chance of getting pregnant and of having a normal pregnancy. It started back in the early 90s, and originally it was called PGS, or pre-implantation genetic screening. And then back in 2017, there was a whole lot of renaming of lots of fertility treatments, and it was renamed PGTA, so pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy. 
And actually today I've just been making, I'm making a series of videos about my research and my papers that I've published to try and help the public understand these research papers, which I always try to make very readable, but not everyone's going to want to go and sit and read a paper. So what I've done is um, just made some short videos talking about the key messages. And the one I started with today is about what we've called these technologies like PGTA, which is an IVF add-on. So they're an add-on to our normal fertility treatment with the suggestion that this treatment would help your chance of getting pregnant. With PGTA, the clinical studies that need to be done with any of these add-ons, the clinical studies that need to be done, they're called a randomized controlled trial. And this is where we've got a control group that just has normal IVF and the treatment group, which has, for example, PGTA. And then we need to do hundreds and hundreds of people in this clinical trial. And at the end, we need to see, was there a difference in the in the live birth rate, the chance of having a baby in these two groups? So did the PGTA significantly improve your chance of getting pregnant? Now, unfortunately, from the early 90s, when these procedures were started, there have been many, many clinical trials. And in my view, and in the view of many other people, there is no evidence that any of them show that PGTA improves your chance of having a baby. That includes the HFEA. The HFEA, if you go to their website, they have labeled PGTA with a red signal, which means that it doesn't improve your chance of having a baby. The big international society for fertility is called ESHRA, the European Society for Human Reproduction and Embryology. And I I worked with the HFE actually on their ratings for each of these treatments. And I've also worked with ESHRA. And we've had a paper published a couple of months ago where we looked at all of the add-ons, much more than the HFEA did. The HFEA have only rated a few of them. But the ESHRA document, we did 42 I think it was. And PGTA is there again, and it's we don't recommend it. It's not recommended. So it's not recommended by ESHRA. It's not recommended by the HFEA because the clinical studies do not show that it improves life birth rate. But some clinics offer it totally routinely. They say in their clinic it's amazing. In the US, there's many clinics that do it for every patient. I have very strong views about it. <laughs> lots of people have made lots of money. And I don't think it's the best for our patients. I I think it's really, to be honest, I'm going to be controversial. I think it's a travesty. I think we're, we've really exploited patients. And I, I feel this across women's health. There are certain technologies and tests where I feel we are exploiting women instead of empowering women. So they will give you lots of great arguments about it. I was in Japan recently at a conference and one of the main people from one of the main companies that offer this said very clearly, PGTA will not improve your chance of having a baby. I love that you're being controversial and I love that you were there basically from day dot. This is the side that you've come out on. I'm in all the forums and I chat to all my clients and this is something I think people feel like if it picks up on something, then it's worth doing. But but like you said, all the HFEA ratings and everything you've just said suggests actually it's not going to improve your, your chances at all. I did have one person say to me, actually, it does help with particular populations of women, for example, much older women. But are you saying it doesn't help? There's no significant data show it does help anyone of any age. 
The trouble with older women, if we go back to what I said earlier, older women produce less eggs. So when we stimulate an older woman, no matter what drug regime we use, if you did an experiment where you stimulated a woman with any drug regime every two years, she would get less and less eggs each time because the quantity of these eggs is going down as she ages. So the trouble with PGTA is it's a selection mechanism. So if we had eight excellent quality embryos, it would tell us which were the good ones and which were the bad ones. If you get to a woman who's 42, the chance for having eight good quality embryos is almost, it's, it's very low. I wouldn't say zero. It's very, very low. If you've got a woman who's 42 and you've got two good quality embryos, you don't need to do a selection test. You just put them back. You, know, you don't have to put them back at the same time. You can freeze one, put one back. It doesn't work really in older women. And there's no data to show that, that it does work. It does work in, in older women. You know, I'd like people to show me the paper that's telling them that it works <laughs> in older women um, because the older women produce fewer embryos. What many of the studies have actually done, which is another travesty, the studies on egg donors, young egg donors, the studies on young women. Why would you do it on an egg donor? Anyway, because older women don't produce enough embryos to actually be valid in a clinical study. Mm-hmm. So uh, repeated failure, we just don't know. That Honestly, I'm a scientist. I have no agenda in this. I don't sell this technology. I'm an academic. I've been on both sides of the table. You know, what I'm saying, what the HFA is saying, what EFSA is saying, what's our agenda to say that a technique didn't work? We all want to help people get pregnant. If something worked, I would absolutely push it. For sure, I want to help people get pregnant. And unfortunately, this procedure from the very beginning, in my view where I was sitting, it never, there was never a study that showed it improved your chance of getting pregnant. Mm. And some people say it reduces miscarriage. But again, the, the data doesn't show that. It really doesn't. In my view, in my view, it doesn't show that. And so what people will do is show you small, very small studies And then, you know, they're not a randomized controlled trial. They're not a high quality study. They're not a good number of people within the group. And then that's just not really valid. You can't make a judgment on that. It's just not valid. I appreciate your honesty. I think it's fantastic. And, you know, like I said, the main goal Roshan and I have is to bring a little bit of hope, but also some good quality, reliable information. And that's that's why we do the show. And it's fantastic to have someone who is so experienced and has been there from the beginning um, telling us what they think. So I think this is fantastically helpful. And, you know, it might even save people some heartbreak and it might even save them some money because at the end of the day, IVF is expensive, especially if it's an add-on. I very much appreciate your thoughts on this. Joyce, I could speak to you forever and I feel like we have covered a lot. So thank you so much for your time. If people are interested in finding out more about you and your information and advice, where would be the best place to find you? I've got a website at www.joyceharper.com, all one word, joyceharper.com. And on social media, I'm at Prof Joyce Harper. It's the same on all platforms. And I normally put very similar things on each platform. So you only really need to follow me on one of them. So yeah, welcome to get people's views. And and my podcast is on all podcast channels. Just search my name and, and it will come up. And I also have a YouTube channel. It's Joyce Harper again. So they can find me on there.
Amazing. Well, thank you so much. It has been a real joy speaking to you. Thank you for giving us your time. Thanks very much. Well, Maria, I think it's safe to say that there is very little about fertility that Dr. Joyce Harper does not know. One of the things I love about her is, I mean, she's obviously smart, she's intelligent, she knows everything there is to know, but the fact that she also ended up living this experience just makes her so much more relatable because she genuinely understands what people are going through. And that's one of the things I love about her. She really gets it from every possible angle. Her years of experience from being in the labs and all the way through to going to schools and trying to educate and get ahead of the problem. It's cold comfort for people that are going through fertility now that they weren't educated about fertility. But it is so reassuring that someone's out there doing it. She's fighting the good fight and everything that she does from her own podcast to her book, everything is about educating. And again, I love that she is very clearly targeting the key stages in a woman's life. And and I think this is massively, massively important. So, yeah, an amazing conversation. And I just loved everything about it. And it's a conversation that we actually didn't stop. This is part one of our Dr. Joyce Harper interview. Next week, we go more into the tactical things that you can do to improve your health and why it's important to have good health, not just for fertility, but at all those crucial points in a woman's life. Dr. Joyce goes into it in great detail and it's well worth a listen. Thank you so much for listening to this week's show. Remember to subscribe to get a shiny new episode each week and please rate, comment and really importantly share with your friends, especially our trying to conceive sisters. You never know who's struggling and may need that little bit of extra help. This may come as a surprise, but we are not doctors. We strongly recommend that you consult with your doctor before beginning any exercise or nutrition program. Get everything checked out first. Your safety is our priority. This has been a Worth a Listen production.